0: Welcome to this special seasonal magazine for Christmas 2023, produced by Wyndham and Attleborough, Talking Newspaper. Hello, I'm John, and I'm pleased to welcome you to this selection of feature items taken from the Eastern Daily Press, the EDP magazine, and other sources. The editor is Peter, and the sound technician is Duncan. Your other readers are Mark, Ruth, Anne, Sally, and John. In the first part of the recording, the items on this edition are as follows. Christine Weber is convinced that the younger generation would be amazed to hear about our childhood Christmases. Supermarkets must reintroduce the human touch. Veterans Norfolk Farmers book, Charting a Lifetime Adventure by Chris Hill. Help your garden wildlife survive the winter. Martha James explains your rights when deliveries go wrong. Toy Shop's predictions of this year's top sellers by Bethany Wales. A Ghostly Traveller on the Lonely Marshes by Stacia Briggs and Be Off for a Bonner. And the first item in this section will be read by Mark.
1: Hello, I'm Mark. Younger Generations Will Be Amazed to Hear About Christmas from Our Childhoods by Christine Webber It's funny what you think about when you can't sleep, isn't it? The other night I found myself remembering the bedsits I rented in London when I was young while not very successfully trying to pursue a theatrical career. Next, my mind moved on to the in-between jobs I took when theatre work was thin on the ground. These included demonstrating Fisher-Price toys and Hamleys, being a tea lady at Thames TV, and more stints as a barmaid than I can count. And, as I looked back, I realised that these different forms of employment taught me a lot. Certainly, in the pubs, I had to learn quickly how to cope pleasantly with difficult customers, and that's been quite useful. I fell asleep again eventually, but in the morning I was still dwelling on the past, and in particular on those relatives I've loved most. There was my favourite aunt, who was a wonderfully warm woman with the most beautiful smile. My paternal granddad, who'd had no schooling after the age of twelve, but who had a huge drive and energy and made a success of various small businesses. I always enjoyed being in his company. Then, my other grandfather, who worked in the shipyards in Glasgow, had a passion for show business and saved up all year to take his annual holiday in London so he could go to as many shows and plays as possible. Once I was old enough, he took me as well. And it was with him that I went into many famous theatres for the first time, including Theatre Royal, Drury Lane, where we saw the original cast of My Fair Lady. I still tingle all over when I remember the joy of watching that with him. I feel now these three relatives live on in me, somehow, and I am glad and grateful to have spent time thinking about them afresh. Next, my trip down memory lane took me to my school days. I imagine many of you have a teacher to thank for opening your mind to new possibilities. I definitely do. Her name was Mrs. Skoos. She taught at my primary school and was a marvellous musician. I adored her, though she could be terrifying back then I was having piano lessons with an old guy my parents knew. To be honest, they were shockingly bad. Somehow Mrs. S. got wind of this and decided without asking anyone, including my parents, or expecting payment or thanks, to take me under her wing and coach me herself. Because of her efforts, I was awarded a place on Saturday mornings at the junior department of the Guildhall School of Music. This changed my life forever. I have no idea what sparked off these memories, but as a consequence of revisiting them, I have decided to tell my younger relatives some of my experiences, having realised that few people alive today were part of them. I have also begun a written record, which has encouraged even more delving. We all know, of course, that if we don't share details of our past with others, they'll be forgotten. So perhaps this festive season would be a good time for you to tell younger relations all about what you got up to when you were younger, and what experiences turned you into the person you've become. Sadly, the oral tradition of storytelling, fiction, all fact around the fireplace has largely gone. But why don't we revive it this Christmas? I know many individuals these days investigate their ancestors via the internet, and also that courtesy of mobile phone cameras, we have countless visual reminders of how we live now. However, I believe we need the power of words to flesh out the reality of the people places, and things that have shaped us. I bet your younger family members would love to hear about Christmases when you were young, or about your first day at school, a childhood pet, a teacher who guided you, an early love who showed you how special you are, or a boss who promoted and supported you. They will know you better through finding out more about you, and in time may understand themselves more too. After all, you are a living influence on them and in their DNA. And maybe, like me, you'll consider writing some of this down to preserve the memory of those folk who helped you on your way. And to give you a laugh as you recall some of the scrapes you've been in. It will remind you of just how much you've done and how amazing you have been in coping with life's ups and downs. Most importantly, it will give you extra confidence to carry on achieving in the future.
2: At Christmas time, supermarket shopping can be a daunting experience. Andy Newman says it's time for our local supermarkets to reintroduce the human touch. Back in August, I wrote in this column about the unwelcome replacement of human beings by machines in our supermarkets, self-service checkouts where customers are expected to do all of the work, so that the companies can sack their staff and further line the pockets of their shareholders. Often, the words which I write on these pages give rise to vigorous debate in the bottom half of the internet. That's fine, this is an opinion column after all, and as long as it doesn't descend into personal abuse, it's always good to have one's opinions challenged by those who hold a different view. The striking thing about my piece about self-checkouts was that every single comment I saw agreed with me, something of a first it has to be said. It seems I had struck a chord." In that article i used as an example my local supermarket which during the summer ripped out all but four of its staffed checkouts in order to install a phalanx of the automatic variety which four months on remain largely unused as customers prefer to queue to be served by a real live human being the weekend after my article appeared Several members of staff at said supermarket gingerly sidled up to me while I was doing my shopping to tell me how much they agreed with what I had written, and that in their opinion the decision to move towards automated checkouts was the wrong one. It's a shame then that the supermarket chain Booths doesn't operate in this part of the world because they have announced that they're going to axe almost all of the self-service tills from their stores following a backlash from customers. We believe colleagues serving customers delivers a better customer experience, and therefore we've taken the decision to remove self-checkouts in the majority of our stores, said Booth's Managing Director, Nigel Murray. Our customers have told us this over time, that the self-scan machines that we've got in our stores can be slow. They can be unreliable. They're obviously impersonal. Well done to Booth's, which is known as the Waitrose of the North, for listening to its customers and having the guts to admit that it got it wrong. Meanwhile, at the Norwich branch of the Waitrose of the South, i.e. Waitrose, there were long queues for the few remaining real tills, while many of the robotic ones stood unused. Whatever is it going to be like at Christmas, when people fill their trolleys with far more things than can possibly be balanced in the self-service checkout bagging area, and will thus require an actual person to scan their shopping? You may be wondering why people are prepared to queue for ages, ...rather than get to grips with the technology and use the automated checkout? There are a number of answers to that. One is that they only really work when you're just buying a handful of items... ...and certainly not when you have a trolley full. Another is that a large percentage of the time... ...you end up pressing the button to summon a member of staff anyway either because you're buying something which requires your age to be verified, or because the machine has failed to recognise the barcode, or just because those who haven't grown up with technology find them difficult to use. But the main reason why shoppers will choose to wait for ages at a real checkout is that most of us like the human interaction. Given that according to US Surgeon General Dr Vivek Murphy, loneliness is as bad for your physical health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, choosing to shun technology and deal with actual people is the sensible option, even if it does mean endless queuing. It is this backlash against anti-people business practices which has led to Booth's decision to roll back the technology and reintroduce the human touch. It's the desire to be more sociable when we shop that led to a quarter of a million people signing a petition last year urging Tesco to stop the replacement of people by machines. And it is by such customer power that we can fight this insidious techno-creep and encourage every supermarket to follow Booth's lead and realise that the business which values people is the one which will prosper.
3: Hello, I'm Ruth. Veteran Norfolk Farmer's book charts a lifetime of adventures across the globe by Chris Hill. And the author says it would make an excellent Christmas present. A well-known Norfolk farmer, broadcaster and journalist has published a book of light-hearted anecdotes and adventures from his travels around the globe. David Richardson, who lives near Windham, took six weeks to write Around the World in Many Ways, inspired by his own memories and illustrated with many of his own photographs. The book charts the 86 year old's lifetime of travels around Europe, Russia, China, Japan, the USA, South America, Africa. Australia, and New Zealand. Its pages reflect historical changes in society and farming, in landscapes ranging from the Andean mountains to the African plains, and from the American cattle ranches to Asian paddy fields. He also toured famed landmarks and met larger-than-life characters including a bullfighting Spanish count and a vodka-loving Russian commissar. I've been one of the luckiest people in the world to go around and see all these things, said Mr. Richardson. The book is full of light-hearted anecdotes and insights that I've picked up as I've travelled around the world. I've only written about half as much as I could have done, Ernest Hemingway said, Never write all that you know, otherwise you become boring. So I picked out the highlights, and there's a bit of humour in it as well. Mr Richardson caught the travel bug after school trips to Switzerland and Austria in his teens, but after hiring the 260-acre White Rails Farm in Great Melton, He feared his new responsibilities meant he would never get a chance to travel again. But that changed after he was asked to lead a tour of young farmers to the Netherlands in 1962, followed by trips to Paris and Brussels after he began broadcasting, and he was eventually asked to lead a party to China by his friend Jill Lewis, who ran the Agricultural Travel Bureau, now Field Farm Tours. The memorable characters he encountered on his subsequent travels include a man named Leopold Il Conde de la Mazza, a charismatic Spanish count who was mayor of his local town and also kept a herd of fighting bulls on his 2,000-acre farm which he would performance test himself by swinging a cape and wielding a toy wooden sword. Another favourite tale involves a trip to the former Soviet Union during leader Mikhail Gorbachev's glasnost political reforms in the late 1980s. I used to like going to places where there was a change happening, said Mr Richardson. We went to Russia, Ukraine and Moldova, just after Gorbachev had come into power and was talking about glasnost and perestroika, openness and restructuring. The commissar of the area had arranged a party in our hotel in Russia, and he had loads of vodka. We had this meal, and after the first course, he stood up and proposed a toast, and the interpreter said I was supposed to respond. So I thought of something to say and did a toast to him. And this went on for eight or nine courses. It got to about midnight and he stood up again. By this time I was pretty pie-eyed, but I got up and in my befuddled state I said, in our country we had a prime minister who coined the phrase to explain the relationship between our two countries. He said there was a cold war going on between us. But now, comrades, the cold war has warmed up. And then he got up and kissed me. It was the first time I'd ever been kissed by a man. That was quite an occasion. Mr Richardson's previous book in 2016, entitled In at the Deep End, was an autobiography about his farming life, which saw him leading many industry organisations and a broadcasting career, which included presenting TV and radio programmes for Anglia TV and the BBC, and later writing regular outspoken columns for Farmers Weekly. But he described the new publication as a more light-hearted coffee table book, which would make an excellent Christmas present. The book costs £25 and is available online via waterstones.com or by contacting Mr. Richardson directly on 07831 and i'll repeat that telephone number 07831 102
4: <laughs> Hello, I'm Sally. Help your garden wildlife survive the cold winter months ahead. As we approach the winter season and the temperatures decrease, it's important to provide support for the birds and insects that reside in your garden. Autumn and winter can be challenging for outdoor wildlife due to the colder weather, limited food availability and changes in sheltering habits. British garden centres has some great tips so you can safeguard the most vulnerable wildlife and create a haven for them to hibernate during the cold months. Garden birds. Winter is undoubtedly a challenging season for garden birds and it is crucial to provide them with food and water during the cold spell. Birds require additional nourishment and hydration in cold weather so it is important to supplement their diet. Opt for energy-rich bird food containing suet, nuts and oil-rich seeds like sunflower hearts for your bird feeder or table. British Garden Centres offers a wide range of feeders, bird tables and ground feeders suitable for all garden birds. Fill your bird feeders with different types of food to attract a variety of avian visitors. An all-round complete mix that combines high-energy seed blends, nuts and essential nutrients is a convenient and effective choice. Suet feeds, such as suet cakes and energy balls, are also excellent for winter feeding and can be found in stores or made at home. Water is essential for garden birds during this period. Freezing temperatures often render many water sources inaccessible. Regularly check and replenish the water in bird baths and bowls daily, ensuring that our feathered friends have both drinking and bathing opportunities. To provide warmth and shelter, hang nesting boxes on trees or fence posts. Bird houses are ideal for small garden birds like tits, robins, nuthatches, sparrows and wrens. Insects. Did you know that there are approximately 10 million insect species worldwide, all in need of a habitat? Having a bee and insect house in your garden is an excellent way to care for wildlife during winter. Insect and bee hotels specifically assist solitary bees by providing essential shelter in our gardens. By attracting beneficial insects to our outdoor spaces, they will help pollinate our flowers and control pests during the spring and summer. Insect houses are available in various sizes and contain bamboo tunnels, pine cones and wood shavings. They provide a home for bugs and shelter for bees and are suitable for beetles, ladybirds, lacewings, spiders and butterflies. Insect houses also offer protection and refuge during the winter while enhancing the aesthetic appeal of your garden. Place your hotels in a quiet, weather-protected corner of your garden. Look for a spot that offers both shade and sunlight as insects prefer a sense of safety and cosiness, while bees thrive in sunny areas. Ideally, choose a west- or south-facing location. To attract butterflies, bees, and other pollinators, plant nectar-rich flowers near the hotel. Honeysuckle, verbena, roses, clematis, Foxgloves, hollyhocks, geraniums, lavender and edible herbs are excellent choices for attracting pollinators to your garden. Hedgehogs During this time of year, hedgehogs require assistance in finding shelter and protection as they hibernate for winter. Hedgehogs are particularly fond of cat food, so leaving some cat biscuits on a saucer for them to enjoy is recommended. Additionally, provide a shallow dish of water to ensure visiting hedgehogs stay hydrated. For nesting hedgehogs, it's advisable to leave a wild area in the garden where they can rest. Allowing fallen leaves, long grass and other garden debris to accumulate creates a protected space for hedgehogs to spend their daylight hours. Amy Stubbs, project and Development Manager at British Garden Centres, said, By following these simple steps, you can transform your garden into a winter wonderland that attracts a diverse array of wildlife. Your local British Garden Centres store has all the advice and products that will enable you to experience the pleasure of observing the beauty of nature right on your doorstep while providing valuable support for animals during the challenging winter season. Hello, I'm Anne.
5: What are your rights when home deliveries go wrong? By Martin James. Have you experienced a delivery disaster? You're not alone. In fact, ask any of your friends, family or colleagues and the majority will have a story about a parcel going missing, turning up broken or being left in a random place. This year, an emerging new trend with package delivery problems is the picture that proves the delivery took place. I've seen loads of your pictures of parcels propped up by random shoes, leaning on unidentified doors, and inside mysterious containers, almost always bins. In my favourite recent example, one delivery company was insistent that the package had been correctly delivered, despite the wrong door number featuring prominently in the photograph. Package delivery issues are, without a doubt, one of the biggest sources of frustration for readers. So, here's my guide to your rights when things go wrong. Who is responsible for any delivery? If you have a problem with a delivery, your contract is with the retailer, not the delivery firm. That means the shop is fully responsible for getting the goods to you and replacing or refunding you if something goes wrong. Think of the delivery firm as a contractor working for the retailer. The delivery company is responsible for getting the parcel to you or leaving it where you have specified. It's not your fault if the parcel is left somewhere you haven't authorised or been left with a neighbour or left in a communal or unsecured area or left outside a door then nicked or broken or damaged when you open it. What if the delivery company claims the delivery has been made? Complaints about missing packages tend to follow trends. In the past, the main complaint I heard was when a delivery company falsely claimed that they had attempted to deliver, when in fact you were at home all day waiting for a knock at the door. In order to crack down on this... Delivery companies have introduced a range of ways to ensure that the package is actually delivered, which is why I'm hearing so many complaints about photographs that don't prove anything if you're not in them. The same goes for signatures that aren't your signatures and tracking apps that claim the item has been delivered. Don't get too wrapped up in the details. If you're disputing that a delivery was made, take it up with the retailer. Just explain in simple terms what's happened and point out how the package delivery company does not have accurate proof of delivery. This doesn't affect your refund rights. If your item is missing in action, then you are entitled to a full refund by law, or you can request that the shop sends the item again. If the retailer doesn't play ball, threaten them with the small claims court. Delivery dates. You are entitled to expect your goods to be delivered on the agreed date that you were given when your order was placed. If no date was given or agreed, the shop must get your purchases to you within 30 days of the order being placed. If this doesn't happen, you should get a full refund. If you paid a supplement for a specified time or date of delivery, you can ask for this back too. Foreign deliveries. You might not realise it, but ordering from those attractive ads on social media sites might mean you're actually buying from a shop abroad. This can be a nightmare because returns can also be difficult and expensive. So before you buy from a non UK firm, check to see if they have a UK website. Look for a UK address and confirm in writing that they are sending from the UK. Check if the prices are in sterling. If it's not, you pay the exchange rate at the point the firm debits you, so it can fluctuate quite a bit. You will probably pay bank or credit card processing charges too. And also check what the policy is for returns and how to contact the firm if something goes wrong. This article is by Martin James, who is a leading consumer rights campaigner, TV and radio broadcaster and journalist.
0: Toy Shop Reveals Predictions for Top Sellers for Christmas 2023 by Bethany Wales A Norfolk toy shop has revealed its predictions for the top-selling Christmas toys this year, and the list might surprise you. Langley's Toys, which has been in Norwich for 140 years, said business was still going strong despite the cost of living crisis, with many parents opting to spread the cost of Christmas throughout the year. And with many starting their festive shopping as early as July, manager Chris Goulding said some clear favorites had already emerged, along with a common theme. This year, we've seen a real resurgence of retro toys that were popular in the 80s and 90s, he said. Trends always come back round, so if something has been popular before, then the chances are it will stand the test of time. That's been especially true with our top-selling products over the past few months. Number one, 90s throwback. According to the shop, the undisputed number one toy this Christmas is a true 1990s throwback, Pokemon cards. Mr. Goulding said the cards have been the shop's top-selling product almost every day for the past year, with nostalgic parents more than happy to feed their kids' appetite for the Japanese export. He added that a surprise favorite from the Pokemon universe had been the brand's advent calendar which contains booster packs, coins, and stickers. And despite retailing at 45 pounds, Mr. Goulding said customers have been tripping over themselves to get hold of them. He said, Pokemon is still a massive thing, and that's definitely spurred on by parents who collected the cards when they were young. The brand marketing is very clever, and they keep things in short supply to build up demand. There's also constant new releases, so there's always something new to collect. Number two, an old favourite. Coming in a close second on the shop's bestseller list is another classic, Lego. Mr. Goulding said the Danish favourite was a hit year after year, with its huge range of products at every price point keeping it popular. He added, anything to do with construction always does well, and Lego has the added advantage of being popular with kids and adults alike. And at number three, a new entry. Third on the list is a new game from Play Monster called Pigs on Trampolines. Play involves bouncing plastic pigs off tiny trampolines and into a pig pen, with players collecting mud pies as points for successful throws. Mr. Goulding said the game was predictably flying off the shelves with Anything to do with pigs, popular with young customers. He added, some things just capture kids' imaginations, and this is one of those. Games are always popular at Christmas, and we've also seen a huge demand for a more adult-focused board game based around the TV series Bridgerton. We've only just got those in the shop, but people have been requesting it for months, so I predict that it will end up being very popular. And here is a list of Langley's top ten most popular toys for 2023. At one Pokemon holiday calendar 2023 at forty-four pounds and ninety-nine pence. Two Lego Icons Optimus Prime at hundred and forty-nine pounds and ninety-nine pence. Number three Playmaster Pigs on Trampolines game nineteen pounds and ninety-nine pence. Number four, Slime Party Sensory Putty Various Scents at £7.99. Number five, Sylvanian Families Village Doctor Starter Set for £34.99. At number six, Dorable's Stitch Collector Pack at £19.99. At number seven, Robo Time Luminous Globe at £49.99. Number eight, Yoga Squishy Beanie by Marvel at £7.99. Number nine, VTech Toddler Tech Laptop at £26.99. And at number ten, Jelly Cat Nordic Spruce Christmas Tree Plushie at £29.99. And the article is illustrated with a photograph of Mr. Goulding with some of the most popular toys, including Pokemon cards, Pigs on trampolines, and the VTEC toddler laptop.
1: A Ghostly Traveller on the Lonely Marshes By Stacia Briggs and Shefra Connor Famous in Norfolk as the road that joins Akel to Great Yarmouth, the Akel Strait hides a host of ghosts and phantom travellers. It's a stretch of road like no other in Norfolk, a spirit level which crosses the misty marshes to link a Broadland market town to the seaside. The Aecl Strait, a delight to drivers who aren't in a hurry, offers views across grazing marshes dotted with wind pumps, with its patchwork of farmland and dikes that stretch for miles from Acle itself to Great Yarmouth, a journey of nine miles over reclaimed land which was once under the sea. The road, also known as the Acre New Road, began as a turnpike road following an Act of Parliament in 1830 for making a new road across the marshes between Acre and Great Yarmouth, with a branch road between Seven Mile House on the River Burr and Hulvergate Village. Shortening the distance from Great Yarmouth to Norwich by three miles and five furlongs, the road was staked out in 1830, and ditches were created on each side 37 feet apart. Layers of willow brushwood, soil from the ditches and gravel created a road, and willow trees were planted on either side. By April 1831, The road was complete other than for a layer of broken stones and shingle. It opened later that year as a toll road. As its name suggests, the road is exceptionally straight, other than a curve where the Hulvergate branch road joins it at a point which encompasses the new Hindu temple in the former home of the Stracy Arms, a preserved wind pump, a house, and a hump bridge which spans the Norwich to Yarmouth Railway line. It was close to this exact point where something very strange was spotted. The spectral figure of a man. A driver passing the Hulvergate turn-off, a notoriously dangerous stretch of the Acle Strait which has tragically claimed many lives over the decades, on their way to Akle, watched in horror as a middle-aged man walked out, into the centre of the road, from the right-hand side and into the path of their car. With no time to stop, the figure turned to look at the driver, and as he did so, the car passed straight through him. And it's not the first time that ghosts have been seen on this stretch of road. Other drivers have reported seeing a phantom horse and cart crossing the road directly in the path of oncoming vehicles, while other drivers have reported having a sudden impulse to brake violently and for no apparent reason at certain points along the road, despite having seen nothing to lead them to the conclusion that an emergency stop was necessary. Eighteen months after the Holvergate spirit was spotted, Bill Richardson was driving on the Acre bypass towards Hemsby at around 7am, when he had to slam his brakes on in order to miss hitting someone who had stepped out in front of his car. Someone suddenly stepped into the road in front of me, he said. They appeared to be wearing some sort of shiny uniform and swinging their arms as if they were marching. At this very moment, a fellow early morning traveller heading down the carriageway in the opposite direction also pulled up. Bill realised this had to be more than just a coincidence. He said, After a couple of minutes, I pulled myself together and got out of my vehicle and walked over to the other car and spoke to the driver, a young lady, and I asked her if she had seen what I saw. The young lady described what had caused her to make the unexpected stop. A description of the very same man crossing the road who had, just like Bill's mysterious marcher, vanished completely. This was a very weird experience for me, as I would expect it was for the lady of the other car, said Bill. For more Weird Norfolk stories, head to tinyurl.com forward slash weirdnorfolk.
0: And now we have a seasonal contribution from dog behaviourist Julia Collins.
6: This Christmas, before you go up to bed on Christmas Eve, awaiting Santa's visit, do make sure that in addition to your Christmas stockings being securely attached to the mantelpiece, the following are safely and entirely out of canine reach. Grapes, dried fruit, nuts, mince pies, chocolates. These festive items rank highly amongst toxic canine foodstuffs and don't just think toddler height. Factor in the altitude attainability of a potential pet pyramid plus accessories, chairs, tables, piles of presents and so on. Holiday time veterinary attention does not come cheap and imagine the shadow a sickly pet would cast over your celebrations. On a far lighter note, many dogs enjoy the festive season mightily and it's well worth giving a little thought to how our sensitive and loyal companions might comprehend Christmas. There's a general increase in hustle and bustle, and that accompanies the arrival of interesting packages, with plenty to investigate and carefully log in the canine mind. Days are much shorter, frequently cold and wet, but no matter how busy you are, don't stint on your dog's walks. If it's really inclement, one heroic outing could suffice, with some indoor play and attention to replace the afternoon trip. Walks and meals mean everything to your dog. We set a lot of store by Christmas and we expect them to behave well, even faced with a range of visitors and activities. So the least we can do is lovingly preserve their routine with plenty of exercise and downtime, especially if the house is noisy with boisterous visitors. Don't let good habits be sabotaged by supposedly well-meaning guests, feeding your dog from the table, encouraging them onto the sofa, If it's something you don't normally allow and don't let visiting children whip them into a frenzy in fact if your dog is used to an adult household better not leave them alone with children no matter how gentle and placid they are the dog i mean not too many leftovers a few by all means but then cut back on the kibble preserve your dog's sleeping area as a sanctuary and meet up with unfamiliar canine visitors outside first, their coming straight into the house is a mistake. Give plenty of thought to a strange dog actually staying overnight. Don't be all over your dog during the day and then go out, leaving them alone in a silent house. Having made sure they're well exercised, fed and have fresh water, give them a chance to nip into the garden before you go. Leave the radio on, lights, and the heating. And last of all, you might like to just look up foods toxic for dogs. Some of the items will surprise you. And have a lovely Christmas.
0: And our thanks to Julia for that contribution. And on the second part of this recording we have A short story entitled Definitely Not This Year, written and read by Anne Pierce Memories of Christmas in Norfolk to Warm the Soul by Keith Skipper Shopping in Wyndham Through Time by Sarah Stanley Seasons Printings by H.J. written by Trevor Heaton History of some Christmas decorations Situation now offers a festive cost-of-living crisis by Keith Skipper And we end with a Christmas, Did You Know?
7: Definitely not this year Written and read by Anne Pearce "'No, no, and no. "'I said no, I meant no, and I'm not going to change my mind. "'End of.' "'Well, Malcolm certainly sounded as if he really meant it. Lizzie wondered, had her husband always been so dogmatic?' Or had he just become more so over the years? Whichever, she sighed, his difficulty, not to say bloody-mindedness, with the whole subject of Christmas, just seemed to become more entrenched as the decades went on. Lizzie usually got by by simply ignoring his grumpy old man proclivities. She got on as usual with the seasonal preparations, the cards, the presents, the food, the invitations, etc., etc. They had all diminished somewhat over the years, as quite a few people had disappeared, as the seasons seemed to revolve, at an ever-quickening pace. The only relative who was fairly definite as a Christmas fixture now was her mother, Ethel, now 97, still independent and in amazing health for her years. Sadly, her dislike of Malcolm was still just as virulent as when her daughter had shyly brought him home to meet her parents, as her future husband. Something had never gelled between them, not then, not over the years since, and definitely not this year either. However, Lizzie, normally so accommodating to all of Malcolm's foibles, dug her heels in on this one issue, Her mother had no other relatives and quite definitely would be coming to spend three days with them this Christmas. Despite Malcolm's no, no and no ultimatum, the best he had achieved was a reduction from a normal seven days stay to three days. Lizzie felt sad and worried about how she was going to present this shortening of the seasonal visit to her mother. But she became resigned to it. She was just worn down by all the arguments. She wondered sometimes whether her mother's life, shared with a cat, might actually be happier than her own, shared with miserable Malcolm. Lizzie would quite have liked a cat, Not instead of Malcolm, you understand, but just as someone else to share their home. He might be far easier to please and much better company than her husband. She felt a slight sense of shame and mentally slapped one of her wrists. Poor Malcolm. He had various medical issues, as did so many of their generation. Was it unkind... I think he just made far more fuss about them than most people did? Her mother's cat was more on her mind of late, probably because of the stray cat that had, for the past few weeks, been visiting their own back door. Malcolm had, of course, said the mangy thing shouldn't be encouraged. However, Lizzie had different ideas. It seemed rather meant to be. Malcolm had, of course, always refused to consider having any kind of pet. Perhaps this attractive, large, marmalade-coloured cat could become her friend and companion. He was very friendly and didn't object when Lizzie used a microchip scanner borrowed from a helpful neighbour worked for a local animal shelter, to check for a chip to provide owner information. There was no chip and no cover. Lizzie had, via the helpful neighbour, taken a picture of Samuel, as she had decided to call him, and posted copies on various local notice boards and Facebook pages, but no one came forward to claim him. He seemed an extremely clever cat, as he mostly seemed to appear when miserable Malcolm was out. Her mother arrived on Christmas Eve. Her cat, Thomas, was safely and lovingly being cared for by one of her own neighbours, who had quite a few of her own relatives visiting over the holiday, all of them cat lovers, fortunately. Malcolm decided to escape to his allotment for a couple of hours, on the morning of Christmas Eve, would mean he could avoid the first couple of hours of Ethel's presence. It was on the pretext of harvesting some of the carrots and Brussels sprouts that he, so responsibly, grew and contributed for every winter Sunday dinner, and, of course, the most festive one on Christmas Day. He liked to display a slight touch of humour with his Christmas veg offering. He made the same tired little joke each year as he gave them to Lizzie. Of course, to be traditional, they should really have been put on to boil three weeks ago. Lizzie always smiled sweetly and said, Ah, no, we prefer our veg to still have a bit of crunch left, don't we? Bloody hell! That horrible, mangy cat had followed him. The allotment was only a short distance from their house. But why on earth would the awful thing have trotted after him? Proof, if anywhere needed, of how stupid cats were if it didn't realise how unwanted it was. Actually, the cat wasn't really trotting more like limping at as fast a pace as it could manage. He then sat down at a short distance from Malcolm and held up his front right paw. Malcolm saw that the paw was enlarged and a large thorn of some sort was sticking out sideways from one of the larger pads. Two tawny green eyes stared balefully at Malcolm. Malcolm hesitated. He didn't like cats, and he didn't want to be scratched. However, he wasn't totally heartless, and it was difficult to see any living creature in pain. He reached forward, deftly grabbed the cat with his left hand, and managed to quickly and sharply remove the thorn with his right. Samuel smiled at him. Yes, cats do smile. We won't have any arguments about that. OK. An hour and a half later, Malcolm and Samuel made their way home, accompanied by obligatory sprouts and carrots. Malcolm felt a bit awkward. How was he going to explain to Lizzie about his seeming change of attitude towards cats? Well, one at least. He noticed a lot of lights on in the house, as he approached. It might be bloody Christmas, but he hoped that Lizzie hadn't succumbed to switching on the lights in more than one room at a time, or even considered yet whether the Christmas tree lights should be switched on. He opened the front door, and Samuel, still limping a bit, went ahead of him into the kitchen. Malcolm stopped, dumbstruck, at the doorway into the lounge. Who were all these people? What on earth was going on? Lizzie came towards him with a hesitant smile. A few unexpected things have happened, Malcolm. It's turning into a bit of a different kind of Christmas Eve. Her smile looked slightly frozen. There was an imploring twist to the corners of her mouth. You do know everyone, Malcolm, of course. Let me tell you about the things that have happened to them. There's John. His family's flight from Canada has been postponed and they won't be able to spend Christmas with him. And there's Carol. Her Paul's in hospital, and she's going to spend the time she's not able to spend with him here with us. That's Joan, You just popped in for a coffee, and I've persuaded her to stay and share our Christmas Eve meal with us. Malcolm was absolutely horrified to see this particular woman sitting in his chair too. She was the most miserable of individuals and always moaning about something or other. Needless to say, he saw no irony in his judgment of this particular neighbour. And here's Sue and Mike. Awful thing has happened to them. They've just come back after a few days away to find that the loft tank has sprung a leak and cold water has flooded through their ceilings. The insurance company will provide emergency accommodation, but it won't be available until Boxing Day, so they'll be staying with us until then. They're going to have our room, and Mum has agreed that we can have the sofa in her room. Um, The one in here is already allocated to John. Malcolm found himself suddenly sitting down on the one spare chair, without being aware of how his knees had suddenly buckled. He was aware of a glass of something being placed in his right hand and of the slightly pleading expression in the eyes of his wife. It reminded him of the expression on Samuel's face, holding out his hurt paw. Oh, for God's sake, what was the matter with him? Didn't all these people have enough problems? without him being the Scrooge-like spectre at the very non-existent feast. Several items from the morning's news bulletin came into his mind. All the various truly awful events taking place in the world now, along with all the trivial seasonal tat and singing about everyone simply having a wonderful time. Malcolm felt a sudden sense of shame. No matter how he behaved, no matter what things he said or never said, nothing was going to change facts, good and bad, that could only be lived with. Perhaps sharing some of the time together, even if none of the thoughts might bring them all... Well, what... A forced politeness until they could all go home again, or perhaps a kind of metaphorical, if not literal hand-holding, maybe a shared hope to counter all the future uncertainties. oh, what a beautiful cat said John suddenly, I haven't seen him before. Is he a new resident? Everyone was staring at the beautiful Samuel as he walked into the room, his limp now much less pronounced. Malcolm saw the quick shock on his wife's face change to an astonished brightness as he raised his glass and said, Yes, he is. We seem to have quite a few new visitors and residents here today. Let's all raise our glasses for a seasonal toast and to remember all of our loved ones, those always in our hearts, and to those who are strangers, soon to be friends. Samuel smiled too. He fully understood the magic powers of cats to resolve so many of the sticky situations that pesky humans seem to get themselves into.
2: Memories of Christmas in Norfolk to Warm the Soul by Keith Skipper Christmas can be a time of overblown expectations. Nothing like it used to be, we mutter, as another expensive festive fling shrivels away like a limp balloon behind the decorations. Then, as sales bargains and sunshine brochures dance across the television screen, we close our eyes and seek consolation in an era when it really was a season of peace and goodwill, joyful family gatherings spiced with spontaneous storytelling around an open fire. There's a strong tendency to indulge more in a journey of imagination than to settle for a record of fact. Perhaps a quiet stroll along my local bookshelves can combine the two in a way that satisfies yearning for yesterday while recognising a few blessings of today. My Christmas Eve saunter in search of uplifting voices starts way back in 1724, with Daniel Defoe heading this way on a tour through the whole island of Great Britain turkeys were already prominent on the festive menu. He reported on Christmas dinners that walked to London as turkeys and geese were driven to the capital on foot. A prodigious number are brought up from the farthest parts of Norfolk, even from the fen country about Lynn, Downham, Wisbeach and Welney, as also from the east side of Norfolk and Suffolk, of whom it is very frequent now to meet drovers with a thousand, sometimes two thousand, in a drove. A century later, when radical William Cobbett included Norfolk in his tours of the English countryside on horseback, his famous Rural Rides, His Christmas Eve chronicle for 1823 saluted, This county of excellent farmers and hearty, open and spirited men. Our clergy are exceptionally busy at this time of year. Happily, two outstanding men of the cloth found time to light up pages of Norfolk history with plenty of Christmas entries in their famous diaries. Parson James Woodford looked after his Western Longville flock from 1776 until his death on New Year's Day in 1803. His first Christmas in Norfolk was marked by a shilling apiece and a good meal for the poor of the parish. Chilly goings-on on Christmas Day in 1874 for the Reverend Benjamin Armstrong, Vicar of East Durham the thermometer being 15 degrees below freezing point, many were kept away from church through the cold, several sudden deaths owing to severity of the weather. The bell tolls every day in the fog. Henry Ryder Haggard and daughter Lilius formed one of the most prolific family forces in Norfolk literary history. Henry had peered down King Solomon's mines and listened to She Who Must Be Obeyed before he became a gentleman farmer in his native county. He compiled A Farmer's Year in 1898 as he worked land at Beddingham and Ditchingham. His Christmas Day record included "'In the afternoon I went to hear some carol singing "'in the neighbouring church of Broom. Afterwards, a friend who lives there gave me some curious facts illustrating the decrease of population of the parish. It is his habit to make a present of meat at Christmas to every cottage inhabitant of Broome, and he informed me the difference in its cost owing to shrinkage of population between this year and last is something remarkable.' The drift from the land sharply underlined crisis in the farming industry. There could be no hiding from grim realities. On Christmas Eve, 1939, as the country waited for unfettered dragons of war to breathe fire, Lilius Ryder Haggard penned this poignant passage in her Norfolk notebook after watching people on Norwich Market buying bunches of buried holly and little Christmas trees. "'Well,' said a stout and homely housewife, tucking her awkward and prickly burden under her arm, "'there's only one child at home this Christmas, "'and the Lord knows when I'll get the others back again.' But I says to the old man, we'll have the tree and all, and there's not much to hang on it. We'll have to do with hope for a trimmin'. They'll like to think of us just as usual. Similar sentiments from Elizabeth Harland's Diary of a Country Housewife. Her Christmas Day entry for 1950 reads... In the endless struggle to keep alive, we have far too little time for things that really matter. But at this season, whatever our private preoccupations, however black and cloud-banked the international sky, we know a blessed relaxation. Work can wait. Worries can be postponed. Quarrels forgotten. Today belongs to peace, to joy... And kindliness to goodwill and giving. I leave it to evergreen countryside champion Ronald Blythe, who recently celebrated his one hundredth birthday, to complete this short but select band of inspirational scene setters with a little gem from his nineteen ninety seven volume, Word from Wormingford Christmas Eve. A small gift for the postman, they have a rota, on whose endless kindnesses the logistics of this remote farmhouse turn. My towering holly hedge is snowily tipped with old man's beard, but the lower boughs are a glowing mass of orange and dark green fruit and foliage. Blackbirds bustle in and out as I cut branches to hang over the pictures and fireplace. Now pull the curtains, stir the logs, and settle in a favourite chair. Draw close and warm yourself on the hearth of remembrance. Listen carefully, and you'll hear the ghosts of Norfolk Christmas past.
3: Christmas Shopping Through Time by Sarah Stanley Memories from a collection of Christmases past in Wyndham focusing on the town's shops at Christmas and Dickensian Evening. Dickensian Evening was launched in 1986 and the annual event soon became popular. Many residents and businesses entered into the spirit, donning Dickensian-style costumes and sharing mince pies together. Over time, Dickensian Evening involved into a Christmas fair, and then a steampunk theme and Christmas fair, and now it's comfortably ensconced into Wyndham's calendar as Winterfest. On Dickensian Evening in 1988, as the real Father Christmas was so busy preparing for the big night, he had help from Brian Seeger, owner of George R. Reeves Limited, printers, booksellers, stationery and gift shop, and Brian wore the red suit and waved as he was driven to the marketplace through Market Street, where he greeted children with lots of ho, ho, hoes. Brian was a vibrant character in Wyndham and is greatly missed. His uncle, George Reeves, started a printing business in 1928 in a room at the rear of Walter Lane's Gentlemen's Outfitters in Middleton Street. As George's model press expanded, he moved into premises in Church Street opposite Beckett's Chapel and opened a bookshop in Market Street in 1949. He then opened a shop on the corner of Damgate, now part of the RSPCA charity shop, for a short time before moving the print works and shop into Clark's former drapery and grocery store on Damgate Corner. The printing side of the family firm relocated to Town Green in 1994 and the shop floor increased in size. The print works closed in 2010. However, the stationery, card and gift shop remains a busy town centre store today. Run by Brian's daughters, Amanda and Rachel. It's a must-visit shop when Christmas shopping in Wyndham with gorgeous gifts and beautiful cards and a friendly hello. Many of Wyndham's shops created fine window displays of Christmas produce and gifts, decorated with tinsel, crepe paper and strings of light. Brian was one of the first businessmen to go a step further for the town with a stunning display on his Market Street premises of Christmas icicle lights with the dormer windows forming a perfect setting Brian loved being part of our town and certainly is one of our lost characters. The family kept the lights switched on for several Christmases after Brian's sudden death in 2003. Now we're lucky to have Wyndham's town team fundraising and decorating much of our town with lights galore. As mentioned, many townsfolk enjoyed dressing up and taking part in Dickensian Evening in its early years. And Margaret King's antique shop on the marketplace proved the perfect backdrop for Margaret. She ran the shop with her husband Norman for many years, from the early 1970s to some time after 2007. The property in the 1880s, which a butchers owned by Thomas Can. And then in the 1890s by Christopher Laycock, who soon opened a grocer's and draper's next door in what we know as Abbott's. Then in about 1917, Alice Stanley moved her furniture and antiques business here, having moved from Popel Street. The marketplace shop was known as the old curiosity shop. And after Alice died, Billy and Winnie Stanley took over until the 1960s. Margaret King continued the tradition of selling antiques and furniture here. And after she closed her shop, David Hurrell refurbished it and opened Market Cross Antiques Shop, which even featured on an edition of Antiques Road Trip filmed in October 2014. The shop closed in 2019. However, David Hurrell continued in the antiques trade. These days, the antique shop is home to Start Studio, an art studio owned by Sarah Ashcroft, who took on the 17th century property to build her community art studio, running a wide selection of popular art classes, activities, and events for all ages. Many will know my Stanley family roots are in the ironmongery trade, as my great-grandfather, Charles Harvey Stanley, opened his own ironmonger's shop in Wyndham, on Town Green, in 1886. Originally, Charles sold all the traditional hardware and ironmongery goods for the home, including earthenware, basketware, tin baths, oil lamps, oil and paraffin. The list is endless. As time progressed, Charles diversified into new innovations, including petrol, cycles, gramophones and radios.
4: Season's Printings from H.J. by Trevor Heaton. His many admirers and collectors know him by his initials, H.J. Jackson. To his friends and family, he is simply John. And for more than 60 years, the Norfolk artist has been producing colourful and evocative prints of fishing boats, seascapes, harbours and quays, now vanished Norwich Victorian streets and lost country railways. There must be hundreds, probably thousands, of homes in Norfolk and far beyond with an H.J. on the walls, That much is well known, but one side of his art which has largely remained the province of the favoured few is his Christmas cards, which he has produced since the late 1950s. Although some have been commercially available or made to commission, the limited edition cards have never been gathered together in book form until seven years ago. Alan Marshall, who with his wife Marion runs the Broads-based art book publishers, Mascot Media, brought out a delightful new book, The Printmaker's Christmas, The Greeting Cards of H.J. Jackson, which reproduces dozens of the card designs, all made by the artist's trademark hand-burnished lino-cut technique, and tells the stories behind them. Only the card design from 1959 is missing. HJ was on national service at the time. But everything else is here. A colourful, funny and sometimes poignant collection of anything and everything associated with Christmas. Conventional, it's not. The only ones which might fit the traditional pattern are the debut design, and his Three Wise Men from 1964, although the latter subject has been reinterpreted as warrior robots made from Bolton and Paul's fencing products. Sometimes family pets pop up, sometimes it's his daughter Hannah, sometimes streetscapes, sometimes nostalgic household possessions, and yes, Santa. Although H.J.'s version who first appeared in 1966, can be a bit of a handful. One card has him being pursued by beefeaters after snaffling the crown jewels. As Mr Marshall says in his introduction, few of the greetings card features in this book can be described as conventional, but neither can the artist who created them. And hooray for that! The many fans of one of Norfolk's best-loved artists will say, A Printmaker's Christmas, The Greeting Cards of H.J. Jackson by Alan Marshall, is published by Mascot Media. Mascot Media's other books include Afloat and Ashore, The Liner Cuts of H.J. Jackson. Mr. Marshall's title, The Elegant Fowl, won the Norfolk Library Service Reader's Recommended Award at the East Anglian Book Awards. Some of Mr Jackson's Christmas prints illustrate the article, including that of Santa Claus being detained by five beef eaters having stolen the crown jewels and H.J.'s daughter Hannah with her Christmas post.
5: The history of some Christmas decorations. December and decorations, two words that go hand in hand. The shops had their festive offerings up months ago, but December is the time when attention turns to the home and converting it into a veritable Christmas grotto, suitable for Santa and all his elves, if the amount of food we buy is anything to go by. Every year it happens. Out come the boxes of tinsel, the baubles, and the flashing lights. Even those of us who moan and groan about the fuss and bother will decorate a tree, complaining all the while, of course, but then standing back to admire our handiwork. It's hard not to feel proud and raise a small smile for the special feeling that comes with covering the house in fake snow. But how did it all start? Christmas trees from monks to royalty. In the seventh century, a monk from Crediton in Devon went to Germany to spread the Christian message. Legend has it that he used the triangular shape of the fir tree to describe the Holy Trinity of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the 12th century in Central Europe, The fir tree was being hung upside down from ceilings at Christmas time as a symbol of Christianity. The Victoria and Albert Christmas tree was introduced to Britain in 1846. Queen Victoria and her German Prince Regent were pictured in the illustrated London news, standing with their children around a Christmas tree. Victoria was very popular with her subjects and what was done at court immediately became fashionable. The English Christmas tree had arrived. Star or angel, a religious decision. The decision of what to put on top of your Christmas tree is generally between a star and an angel. Of course, both have religious connotations. The angel representing the angel Gabriel, who informed the shepherds of the birth of Jesus Christ, and the star of Bethlehem that led the three wise men from the east to the stable where he was born. Tinsel, a valuable decoration. Tinsel was invented in Germany around 1610. At that time, real silver was used and machines were invented which pulled the metal out into the thin wafer strips. Silver was durable but tarnished quickly, especially with candlelight. Attempts were made to use a mixture of lead and tin, but this was heavy and tended to break under its own weight, which was not practical. So silver was used for tinsel right up to the mid-20th century when aluminium foil took its place. The Hanging Ornaments, A Nativity in Your Tree Christmas tree decorating really began at the European Christmas markets in Nuremberg, Germany in the 16th century. At that time, they were practical markets with everything a housewife needed to prepare for Christmas. Gingerbread makers used honey in their baking and in those days, the honey came raw in honeycombs straight from the beehives, left with large quantities of wax they began to clean and press it into the carved wooden moulds used to shape the gingerbread. In the 16th and 17th century, these moulds were often scrolls, cherubs and plaque shapes. Then later, scenes from the nativity story, men on horseback, animals and many other designs. These wax models were fixed with a ribbon before the wax set and painted or gilded, and sold as fairings, souvenirs of the Christmas fair. People would take them home and place them on their trees. And finally, fairy lights, a dangerous addition before electricity. Until the late 19th century, candles were the only way to light a Christmas tree. There were many experiments to create safe holders from hoops in the 18th century to counterbalanced metal holders and prettily decorated clips in the late 19th century. At the end of the century, experiments with gas lights, many of which blew up, and early electric lights led to a safer option.
1: situation now offers a festive cost-of-giving crisis by Keith Skipper. For all the economic, social and climactic storms surrounding our December adventures, there's no reason why a cost-of-giving crisis should cast too large a dark shadow over this period of joy and goodwill. Nothing wrong, of course, with a swig or two at the bar humbug on a draining march to what has long been our great season of too much. After all, a journey starting for some as soon as the corn harvest has been safely gathered in demands an occasional reality check. As usual, I couldn't believe my September eyes when festive fare craved attention in an assortment of local shops. Barrett's assistants claimed that they were merely carrying out orders from on high, because others had already bent a knee or two inside the grotto of rampant commercialism. Echoes of how the passionate debate over Sunday trading panned out a few money-grabbing years ago, when it became clear strong principles built on declarations of loyalty to a day worth keeping special, just crumbled when rivals voted for economic progress and more choice for customers. That might well have marked the dawn of a brand new era of we're all in this together, aimed at silencing errant nonsense like standing back from a crowd, and suggesting there could be more important matters than spin till you bend, or shop till you drop, or even buy till you die. Do we really need best part of four months to answer that old question about where to go to pay how much? for how many, of which kind, of what to give, to whom. Especially at a time when prices are rocketing, but expectations surely a bit lower than usual. No wonder weary multitudes use December 25th as a priceless opportunity to contest the Great British Sleep Off before sizing up tantalising holiday adverts on the telly and then rushing out for just a few more much-needed bargains at the frantic sales. Yes, it's far too easy to dismiss so much of this celebratory season pulling cynical crackers and search for a pertinent message to go with plastic and paper fripperies. Here's a good one. Why is it customary at Christmas to leave homeless people outside while we bring trees inside? And if supermarkets were less crowded at this time of year, wouldn't more shoppers use them? Just when you hope for solace on offer in the safety of your own indoor world, someone quotes the first rule of a family Christmas. Nobody is allowed to be elsewhere having a good time when they could be in the living room getting on somebody's nerves. I'm reminded of a little lad saying his prayers and passing on all the usual thank yous before exclaiming in a very loud voice, and don't forget... It's Christmas soon, and I want that new bike. Amen. His mother looked on in shock and then rebuked him sharply. There's no need to shout, dear. God is not deaf. No, came the response. But grand downstairs is. Even the birds in our back garden were at it when I peeked out the other morning. Starlings began squabbling over where to go for lunch and how many places in Norfolk turned on Christmas lights in December. Blue tits darted and swooped in a bit to grab every special offer in sight. I told them this was not Black Friday, just a good old fashioned Moody Monday. A lone robin, bossy and territorial, hinted only those wearing Santa red had a right to indulge in festive tweets. The good news, of course, is that all creatures, great and small, including crusty old Norfolk cynics, find fresh rations of optimism and harmony in time to lord this most uplifting time of year. We hang up our stockings of hope no matter how many darns or holes have been added since the old boy last slid down the chimney. An optimist pops out of the gloom to emphasise you can still make people forget the past with the right sort of present, even if it takes next year's money to do it. A friendly joker drops by to say it is perfectly okay to call Santa's little helpers subordinate clauses. Some of them, wearing energy caps, will put in extra shifts at food banks and community hubs as soon as regular grotto duties are done. Perhaps we are on the cusp of a truly careful Christmas, full of mutual care and gratitude, genuinely believing it is far better to like what we have then automatically have what we like. Aunt Agatha put it most succinctly in one of her postscript gems to a letter written in Broad Norfolk to the EDP by Sidney Grapes as the boy, John, during years of post-war austerity. The cost of living is Alice about the same. All you've got. That meaningful motto ought to tumble out of every cracker. This time round.
2: Some Christmas Did You Knows. 1. Rudolph was a marketing ploy. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer first appeared in 1939 when the Montgomery Ward department store, I think that must be American, asked one of its copywriters to create a Christmas story for kids that the store could distribute as a promotion. The adorable movie featuring the Island of Misfit Toys and Herbie the Elf was born in 1964. 2. Black Friday isn't the busiest shopping day. Black Friday, or the day after Thanksgiving in the United States, certainly sees lots of shoppers heading to the mall but we must be a nation of procrastinators because the most hectic days of the year are actually the Friday and Saturday before Christmas. 3. The eight reindeer have had lots of names. Rudolph was almost named Rollo or Reginald, which doesn't quite have the same ring to it, but his crew also had lots of other names. They've also been called Flossy, Glossy, Racer, Pacer, Scratcher, Feckless, Ready, Steady and Fireball. 4. Christmas Wreaths are Religious Symbols The Christmas wreath first originated as a symbol of Christ. The holly represents the crown of thorns Jesus wore at his crucifixion and the red berries stand for the blood he shed. So when you see a wreath this holiday, you'll remember the reason for the season. 5. Jingle Bells was originally a Thanksgiving song. It turns out we first started dashing through the snow for an entirely different holiday. James Lord Pierpoint wrote the song called One Horse Open Sleigh for his church's Thanksgiving concert in the mid-19th century. Then, in 1857, it was re-released under the title We All Know and Love. Today, it's still among the most popular Christmas songs. 6. Astronauts Broadcast Jingle Bells from Space Nine days before Christmas in 1965, two astronauts aboard the Gemini 6 told Mission Control that they saw an unidentified flying object about to enter Earth's atmosphere, travelling in the polar orbit from north to south. Just as things got tense, they interrupted the broadcast with jingle bells, as Wally Shearer played a small harmonica accompanied by Tom Stafford shaking a handful of small sleigh bells. 7. Silent Night is the most recorded song we all know the same few handfuls of Christmas songs play at stores and on the radio in a loop all season long, but one of them has been adapted more than others. Silent Night wears that title as the most recorded Christmas song in history. It's had more than 733 different versions copyrighted since 1978. 8. Settlers created the first American eggnog. The Jamestown settlers created the first American batch of eggnog, although it probably bore little resemblance to today's comforting tipple. The word nog comes from the word grog, or any drink made with rum. An early nog didn't have the rich, milky base we now ladle out of Grandma's cut crystal punch bowl.
0: That brings us to the end of this special Christmas edition of the magazine. If you have any comments to make about this, or any other of the recordings we produce, please contact Georgette on 01953 605 434. That's 01953 605 434. You can also contact us from our website, www.watn.org.uk When the music stops, remove the memory stick from the machine and rotate it back into its protective cover. Place the memory stick and its key fob inside the wallet and return them to us in due course. We'll be back with the regular news recording on the 5th of January 2024 So until then, it just remains for me, on behalf of the magazine production team and all of the talking newspaper volunteers, to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Merry Christmas.